Welcome to the podcast of Seven Rivers Villages Church in Wildwood, Florida. We are a multi-generational community of grace on mission, and you are always invited to join us online or in person. Learn more about us at sevenriversvillages.org. There's a debate online you can watch between Richard Dawkins and John Lennox. Richard Dawkins is the noted uh, naturalist. He's an atheist. Uh, he has been very op- uh, vocal in his opposition to belief in Jesus Christ. And he was debating John Lennox, who is a powerhouse of information and understanding of the gospel and the way that it interacts with us, and particularly in the sciences and God's word. And it was fascinating just kind of watching all of this. But th- there was a little clip that I came across again this week, and it's... Uh, John Lennox challenging an assertion by Richard Dawkins, and Richard was talking about Jesus as a person, and he said, you know, if if you look at historians across the board, will say that Jesus probably didn't really even exist. Jesus didn't exist. He was not a real person. Lennox, having done the reading and being widely connected to a variety of people, and and, uh, I wish I could do his wonderful accent, but I'm not even going to try. But he he said, uh, Richard, I have talked to the historians. I have talked to people who study this for a living, and they all say that Jesus was a real person. We have historical information about Jesus from outside of the Bible. We cannot say that he's not a historical figure. In fact, all of the historians say that Jesus really existed. He was a real person. And it was interesting because he pressed Dawkins on this, and and Dawkins finally said, okay, Jesus existed. And at that point, they ended the video. I was like, well, what else? What else? Um, but it's fascinating because when you look at the historical record, Jesus was, was a real person. Jesus is a real person. And we believe in him. And, and the more we look at the information that we have in the scripture and look at what even history says about Jesus, we realize that the Bible is historically accurate in what it says about Jesus. So what we're looking at this morning is something that happened in the real world, in real time and space history, with Jesus uh, dealing with some Jewish leaders. Now, what we're looking at this morning is in a part of Mark's gospel where it's the last week of Jesus' life. He's entered the triumphal entry into Jerusalem. It's going to end with his crucifixion and his death and burial and then his resurrection. But in the middle, we're reading about a lot of conflict that took place between Jesus and the Jewish leaders because uh, Jesus threatened most everything that they, they really stood for, they, but was calling them to embody the Old Testament they claimed to believe. He's calling them back to it. You're going to see pieces of that as we go through this morning. Uh, but we're looking at Mark chapter 12. And uh, let me invite you to stand as we read together. In honor of God and his word, please stand. And we're going to start with verse 13 in Mark chapter 12. And they sent to Jesus some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. And they came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, Why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius, and let me look at it. And they brought one, and he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. Jesus said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him, 
And Sadducees came to him who say that there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. There were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and when he died, left no offspring. And the second took her and died, leaving no offspring. And the third, likewise, and the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died. In the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as wife. Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God? For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him, saying, I am the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another, and Seeing that he answered them well, asked him, Which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, The most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is this, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to him, You are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one and there is no other besides him. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength. And to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all hold burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he had answered wisely, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's pray and ask him to bless us as we study it this morning. I say that a lot of weeks, but your word stands firm forever. It never fades. It's always dependable. And this is just as true today in the modern world as it was 2,000 years ago. And people have all the same kinds of questions about life and death, about what matters in the world, about who we are. So we pray this morning as we look at this passage that you would enable us by your Holy Spirit to see you who are powerful and ever-present, who are perfect in every way, but you're loving and you're kind, and you've called us into this room this morning to have this conversation. So we pray that you would be pleased to have a conversation with our souls about who we are, who we think we are, and how we bring all of that before Jesus. Would you bless us? Would you be with us? And Lord, would you bless me? Oh, I'm a bent twig. I'm a bruised reed. I'm weak. So I pray that you would be pleased to use somebody who needs to hear as much as he needs to say what's in this passage. Would you bless us and would you be with us, we pray in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Have a seat. I'm about to give the ultimate movie spoiler. It's a movie called Memento. Came out in 2000. And some of you are thinking, I was going to watch that when I got home today from worship. No, you weren't. No, you weren't. Just don't even go there. It's a, I would, I'm not recommending this movie. Um, I saw it when I was younger. Uh, in, 19, in, 20, in 2000, I was like five years old. So I was, 
older than that. Um, so here's, this, here's the premise. Uh, there's a man who was injured on the job as a, pol as a detective, and uh, he can't make any new memories. So he only remembers things prior to the, his accident. And he's trying to uh, solve his wife's murder. All right? So he's putting together the clues and things. And the movie actually begins with him finding the man who did it and uh, bringing revenge upon him. Right? So that's the premise is can't make new memories. And you're thinking, well, hold on, hold on a second. How can he find his wife's murderer if he can't make new memories? And so this is what he did. He would tattoo clues onto his torso so that when he got up in the morning and looked in the mirror, he could see these clues finding, isn't that kind of, that's kind of a neat thing. So he would find the murderer this way. Um, so every day his reality began when he looked in the mirror and he saw these things. But here's the plot twist, and this is the big spoiler. That just came apart right when I said that. I was like, okay, I'll, I'll still get it. Um, he, uh, he ended up uh, dispatching vengeance on the wrong person. Because at one point, he got angry with somebody and had a false clue tattooed onto his chest so that every time he looked at it in the mirror, it got him off on the wrong track because at that moment of anger, he wanted revenge on that man. And so every morning when he woke up, he, there was a lie that was right there that was guiding everything he did for the rest of his day and the rest of his life. Okay, now, you're like... Okay, what does that have to do with this morning? Okay, so what it has to do with this is I th this is why I think this passage is very important for our lives. Jesus' words in this passage are challenging some cultural, uh, the cultural narrative that we have in the United States about what it means to be human, about what it means to live a good life, about what life is all about. He's challenging these things that we have tattooed across our minds, our souls, our hearts. We see them all the time. As soon as you open up your phone, when you wake up in the morning on, on in Insta, like first grab my phone, turn off the alarm, Insta, or whatever, we see these things all the time. So here are a few that are really talked about here. One is we're just accidental apes with no real purpose or identity or value other than what we might make for ourselves. There's no intrinsic value. Number two, li life here is all there is. There is probably nothing beyond death. So this is all you have. The years you have here, that's it. And then the third one is the most important thing is learning to love yourself. And, you know, we live in a world of abuse, and there's some truth in that. But in terms of the way most of us think about it, it's like that's the most important thing I can do is really love myself. And Jesus in this passage is challenging all of these cultural narratives for us. And, uh, you know, we begin by saying this is, you know, we, we, we long to have this grand this sense of a grand existence of why we matter. But if these things are true, then we don't. We're just a product of a bunch of chemical processes. But this passage is pushing us to see a greater reality. So Jesus says, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And the scribe says, you are correct in saying that there is one God, and besides him there is no other. He alone is to be worshipped. And what he's saying is, he's not simply saying, there's only one God for you. Like, you, can only, you should only worship one God. Find one, the best one for you, and worship. That's not what he's saying. He's saying there is literally only one God that exists. There is no pantheon of gods. There is no rival to God being God. There are no other different kind of conceptions about God that are right. God has given his name. He's, he's revealed himself to us. He's told us who he is. 
and says, this is who I am, and this is the way to come to me. He's, you know, here in this passage, when he says, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, which lowercase, it's capital L and then lowercase O-R-D, but it's a reflection of the Old Testament name of God, Yahweh, or sometimes Jehovah God. He's saying, I am, I'm the bedrock of all, of the foundation of all of reality. And, you know, if, even if you don't worship God, he is still God. He's not like Tinkerbell where you have to believe in him for him to exist. He exists whether you believe in him or not. So there is only this one God, and we were made for him, and we were made so that everything about us is tied to something about him. Our most important qualities, our fundamental human qualities, find their origin, their purpose, and fulfillment in him, and everybody lives this way. Even if it's not God, there's something. So writer James Smith summed it up this way. He said, to be human, to be human, is to be for something, directed towards something, oriented towards something. To be human is to be on the move, pursuing something. We're not just static containers for ideas. We are dynamic creatures directed towards some end. We reach out constantly beyond ourselves to something that serves as God in our life. St. Augustine said it this way. He said, you, Lord, you have made us for yourself, and our hearts are restless until we find our rest in you. We all do this. We're all looking for this. So something has first place in your life. We all live this way. So here's a question for you as we get started. What is the greatest thing in life? What are you here for? What are you about? What are you supposed to be about? What's the greatest thing in life? Who are you? I know I said that was one question, but that was like seven or eight right there. Um, so in this passage, Jesus gives us three bedrock, bedrock truths about God, you, and life in the world. These three things. And he talks a lot about love, redemption, wholeness, fullness. And these things explain to us what it means to be human. So the first one uh, is this. There's a truth for you. Uh, God made you in his image. Mark chapter 12, uh, he sa Jesus says, that's around verses 13 and 15, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. So these Jewish leaders came to Jesus, and they, wanted, they were asking him a gotcha question. They asked him a question that no matter who he, how he answered it, he was going to offend somebody or call down the wrath from somebody. So they asked him the question, should we pay taxes to Caesar or not? And because the Jews hated Caesar and the Roman government, if Jesus said, yes, you should pay your taxes, then he's going to call down the anger and frustration of the Jewish people who had been following him. They would be like, you're a traitor, and they would den deny him. But if he said, no, we should not pay taxes to Caesar, then Caesar's going to be after him, and the Roman officials are going to be after him. But Jesus uh, brilliantly addresses their question in an unexpected way. He asks the question back, whose image is on the coin? And they say, Caesar's. And he says, give to Caesar what is Caesar's, and give to God what is God's. And at one level, Jesus answers the question by affirming what we think uh, when we read this initially is Jesus is saying we should pay our taxes. That's it. But commentators across the board widely acknowledge that there's actually a parallel that's hidden in this. Because he's saying, give to Caesar what is Caesar's and render to God what is God's. 
So if the image of Caesar is on the coin, and therefore you pay the coin, you give it back to Caesar, what image, what inscription has, bears God's image? She said the answer, but you didn't say it loud enough. Good, hold on to that. Um, first and foremost, uh, this is a statement about how the Pharisees are treating Jesus. Because we read this as we go through the New Testament. Paul says in Colossians 1.15, Jesus is the image of the invisible God. So in other words, they're not rendering to God through Jesus what they ought to be rendering. They're, they're opposing Jesus. Uh, Jesus said this in John 14.9, If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. So Jesus is the image of God right there in front of them in the flesh, and they didn't recognize him. But it is also correct to say that uh, God made us in his image. We read this from the very first in Genesis chapter 1. God made us. And so you were right. You get brownie points today. That's good. So made in God's image. What does that mean that we're made in God's image? I actually heard a guy say years ago, just for a joke, he said, what does it mean we're made in God's image? It means that we have opposable thumbs. <laughs> we can do things none of the animals can do, right? We're very agile with our thumbs these days. Um, it means, however, that we have a conscious, rational, loving soul that is able to communicate interpersonally with God in a way that nothing else can. God made us in his image so that we could relate to him as image bearers. So um, imagine this for a second. You're a marine biologist, and you want to study the animals, and the only way that you can study the animals is with a barrier between you and them, a piece of glass. So if they're in an aquarium, you can see the glass wall, right? They're there. Or if you're underwater with them, you have on a scuba mask so that you can breathe. But you can't enter into that same environment with that particular animal that you want to see up close. So what would you have to be to be able to enter into their environment? You'd have to be like one of them. You'd have to enter into that environment with them. So God made us as these rational beings with minds and hearts and wills that we could enter into relationship with him. But there's something even deeper is God became like us. There's a deeper interaction. Sin separated us from God, and Jesus took on our image, our likeness, became a human being. He took on a human nature and to serve as a faithful high priest and to make atonement so we could enter back into that relationship with God. So Jesus now, as a human person, shares in our space as he shares in our humanity like a daddy stooping down to pick up a little child and bringing that child into his level. So God has made us in his image, and he has sent Jesus to bear our image, to bear our nature. Now, that's an identity. That's a purpose. That's a significance. It's a goal. This is who we are. This is how God made us to be. So before you step into any room, before you utter any word, before you do anything, your life has intrinsic value because you are made in God's image in a way that nothing else is. God did this for you as a human being. So that means as you're entering into the world, you can do things that are uh, really, uh, I would say, God-like because we're made in his image. Um, and what this also means is not only you have dignity and value, but other people have dignity and value. And what that means is just as God steps into our lives to bring redemption and help and aid with us, God has called us to step into the lives of other people and do something wonderful. That's to show the same grace to them that he has shown to us.
So if somebody needs, uh, has a financial need, we bring aid. If somebody is lonely, we bring friendship. If somebody is confused, we bring direction. We step into the lives of people who matter to God and matter to us because they're made in God's image. So we give to God by taking this person and loving God, presenting this person to God. I render to God the things that are his by loving these other people. There's a second truth that's here I think is really fantastic too, and that is God made you to be eternal. So the Sadducees come to Jesus with another gotcha question. Uh, they don't believe in the resurrection, so it's clear this is not a, this is, they're not looking for information. They're looking to say, we fooled all the, the Pharisees with this question. We're going to fool you now with this question. And Jesus answers their question in Mark 12, 26 and 27, where he says this, as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham and God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Not I was, but I am. He is not the God of the dead, but he is God of the living. You are quite wrong. And so he's speaking to Sadducees who didn't believe in the resurrection. Now, this is still the position a lot of people hold today. Um, I've got a band I like to listen to called the Avet Brothers, and uh, they've got a song called No Hard Feelings, and there's one verse that begins by saying, it's really about what happens when you die and things that you give up. And there's one verse that says, uh, when my body won't hold me anymore, where will I go? What, what will happen to me? Like, we don't, I mean, they're kind of saying, we don't know. But they're not the only ones. You, you might expect that from a band that's popular. But I remember reading about one of the, uh, this past week I told you I was reading some in the Jews for Jesus website and their testimonies. There's a lady who actually helped start Jews for Jesus. And when she was 12 years old, growing up in a Jewish household, her father died. And she went to her rabbi and, and said, Pastor Rabbi, is my daddy in heaven? And her rabbi said, uh, your, your daddy's going to live on in your legacy. That uh, as you live your life, he's going to, you're going to live out his legacy for you. And she saw right through that. She said, that's great, but is my daddy in heaven? And this Jewish rabbi said to her, well, unfortunately, we don't really know what happens to somebody when they die. And that began a quest for her of trying to answer that question about how do you know what happens when you die? And she eventually got to the point where she said, I have a hope of heaven now because of the Messiah, because of Jesus Christ who died for my sins and uh, was resurrected, and someday I will be resurrected. So what do we mean? What are we talking about here? Uh, do, well, one, do you see what Jesus is saying here? He's not the God of the dead, but of the living. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, though they died, they're still alive, right? We talk about life after death, but that's a little bit of a misnomer. It's, it's kind of like a, a continuing life, and there's a change or transformation in the middle, like going through a turnstile. And I was trying to think, how do, how, do we, how do I as a Christian process what's going to happen to me when I die? And I, I came to the conclusion, it's a little bit like when I was going to college when I was young, is I'm sad because I'm going to leave some things behind. I'm going to leave some people behind. But when I go into, the, into heaven, the thing that comes next, I'm going to enter into a grand adventure. And I'm going to see people that I've always wanted to meet. And most of all, Jesus is going to be there. 
It's like going to, co- I was so excited about going to college and university. I was so excited to, I kind of had outgrown my small town. I was like ready to move on. I think it's going to be a little bit like that. We got an image a little bit of like entering into heaven and something's there that you think it's great, it's fantastic, but there's going to be more to it. Yesterday we went as a family to uh, the Magic Kingdom. And uh, if you need me to help you plan your Disney vacation, yeah, we've got some people in the room who can do that. Um, but there was this one moment where we're walking down Main Street, you know, the, heading towards the castle. And we heard somebody shrieking, just yelling. And I thought, is there a kidnapping? What's going on? I have no idea. And we looked over, and it was a group of people hugging. And it, this is apparently what happened. There's this kind of thing that happens online where you're getting a picture taken, and then they're showing you the picture, and there's some unexpected people behind you in the photo. And you don't realize they're there until you look at the, the photo on the camera. Like, oh, yeah, I approve. Oh, they're here. And so grandma, grandpa, somebody was there. They didn't expect to be joining them on their Disney vacation. And I think it was a cry of joy. I think it was a cry of joy. And so they turned, and they're embracing and just yelling, Oh, you're here. You're here. And I think that's going to be what it's like when we go in. It's going to be an adventure. It's going to be it's wonderful. It's going to be fantastic. But then there are going to be these people. You're here. This is fantastic. And uh, I don't know if there are a lot, there's a lot of shrieking in heaven, but I imagine at that moment, seeing these people that you love and the reunions that take place will be pretty fantastic. For the person who knows Jesus, uh, death is like a turnstile, going into something that's fantastic and wonderful. And what he's telling us here is, you are an eternal being with an eternal soul. And if you're redeemed by Jesus, when you die, you don't go into uh, judgment for what you've done. You enter into the glory and presence of our Father in heaven. If we accept the proposition that there's no life beyond, it creates this distortion in our lives where you start looking at the, at, uh, the world as stuff you're going to lose, and if you don't get to do it now, you never will. So we are so desperate to have these experiences here, but when you realize you're going to live in an eternity, and what's coming next is better than anything you're leaving behind, then it enables you to say no and have self-control with those things. I don't need those things because I have something better that's promised to me and someone better who has promised it to me. I think it was C.S. Lewis who described life here like a period, not at the end of the sentence, but at the beginning of a book. So if you imagined your, the, the book of your life being this big, thick tome, right? Your life here is just like a period on the very first page, the very first thing. And then after that is this wonderful, lovely adventure story of what's going to be in the new heavens and the new earth waiting us. It's fantastic. So we're made to be eternal people. That's who we are. We find our perspective on life there. And then the third one that we see here uh, is in Mark 12, 29 to 30. A scribe asked Jesus, and this guy seems to be completely sincere in his question. He's not trying to catch Jesus off guard. But he asked Jesus what the greatest Old Testament commandment was. And in Mark 12, 29 to 30, Jesus answered, The most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all, with all your mind, and all your strength. And then the scribe responds and says that loving God with all of our inmost being is much more than all of the Old Testament offerings and sacrifice. And then Jesus says, you're not far from the kingdom of heaven because you're beginning to grasp this. Jesus is saying, we were made for that love of God. Not to serve God through these ceremonies and different things, but to enter into a loving relationship with God. And when we sinned, 
God did not stop loving us. We stopped loving him. And that brought about God's judgment, but he kept on loving us and he sent his son Jesus to die for our sins, to reconcile us and to restore that relationship and to redeem us from slavery to sin. And then in this passage, Jesus is calling people to something different. And they refer to this command, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength as a command. But as I thought about it this week, I thought that is a weird command, isn't it? Because if you tell somebody to uh, clean their room, there's something tangible that they could do, and there's a beginning and there's an end. But when Jesus says to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, one, there's, there's not anything tangible to do necessarily, and there's nothing that you can pick up and do and say, okay, now I'm done with doing this. So what exactly is going on here? And what he's saying is you were made to be in a loving relationship with God. He's going deeper than just saying here's one thing to do. He's describing what we should be doing all the time. This is what we were made for. Love for God is the totality of me responding with deep affection to the fullness of the truth of God's being, who he is. When we talk about loving God, we mean that we have an experience, uh, we experience a, a desire for intimacy with him. And being around him, we realize that's where my joy is. That's where my delight is. That's where my hope is. The best things I have in life come from him. So whatever I love in life, I direct that to him in gratitude and thanks. And whatever I'm doing in life, I do with the, uh, out, of, out of the knowledge that he loves me and has called me. Psalm, the psalmist says in 61 verse 3, Your love is better than life, talking to God. That's what he's talking about with us here. That's the command. But maybe, as I thought about it, it's not like a command like all the other commandments that God would give to us to say, consciously, this is something you need to be doing. But maybe it's more like the summons that Jesus gave Lazarus. Do you remember that in, Luke, in uh, John's gospel? Lazarus is a friend of Jesus, and he's been dead for a couple of days. He's in a tomb. He's laid in a cave. A stone is rolled in front of it. And Jesus stands before the cave where his friend has been buried. And he says, Lazarus, come forth. And then when he does that, Lazarus comes to life and comes forth. Wouldn't that be something? Wouldn't that be, I think this is really what he's calling us to do here is to recognize this as really a call back to life. A call to him to say, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And that brings back to life something inside of us that may have been dead or may have been in disuse. So calling us to love God with all we are, uh, everything we are, anything else is deflating, it's dehumanizing. So what he's calling us to do is to love God with every part of who we are, our minds, our wills, our hearts, everything. And what he's doing is, bringing that back to life, and giving us um, not something to resist our natural tendencies, but to restore our natural tendencies. In a world that tells you these are the things that are worth living for, he's saying, he's giving us permission not to conform to those things. When he says, love the Lord your God, he's saying, I know other people are telling you what you need to do with your life. You don't have to do that. What you have to do, what you're called to do, what you're made to do is to love the Lord your God. He's given us permission to live here differently, to live in intimate communion with God, to follow where he leads, to rest in his truth, and to stay near him. You don't have to do what others say. 
Love the Lord your God. That's what you do. You don't have to go where people tell you to do or, or buy the things that people tell you to buy or to vote for who people tell you you have to vote for. Love the Lord your God. You don't have to throw yourself into the things that other people are throwing themselves into. Love the Lord your God. You don't have to back away and cower when people criticize you for your love for Jesus. What he's calling you to do is to love the Lord your God. Keep going with that, cheering us on, moving us in that direction. And I think about this in terms of Mary and Martha. Uh, in in uh, Luke's gospel, there's a story where Jesus is teaching. It's, uh, in that day and age, it was mainly a group of men. But Mary, who is the sister of Martha, has joined the men at the feet of Jesus, and she's learning as a disciple, which is pretty amazing. And Jesus let her be there. But Martha is uh, looking at the, the, all the practicalities. Who's going to feed all of these people? Uh, how are we going to provide for them? And so she's busy in the kitchen trying to get everything ready, get food ready, get prepared, serve a meal for these people. And she gets angry because the whole time she's in there, Mary's always like this, Mary's always like this, and she's stirring and she's chopping and she's doing all the stuff that needs to be doing, and she's so angry and frustrated at Mary. So finally she comes off, she comes in, and she mouths off to Jesus and basically says, tell Mary to come and help me in the kitchen. And, uh, Rebecca loves this passage because uh, I'm the one who's always sitting down and making her do all the work, and so it's just hard. So Jesus looks to Martha, and he says, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and concerned about so many things, but only one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the better part, and it's not going to be taken from her. You don't have to do what the expectations are. Love Jesus. Let me give you a different example, more modern example. I had some stu- uh, you know, I did stu- student ministry for a long time, and I heard a story from uh, some students who were at Bellhaven College, I think it was in, in Jackson, Mississippi, and they went down to Mardi Gras one year. And some of you were thinking, kids don't need to be going to Mardi Gras. And uh, they went to Mardi Gras. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of... Uh, people imbibing things they might not should imbibe in, and there was a lot of, uh, shall we say, revelry uh, that's taking place. And so there were these American students, and they invited a student who was studying from abroad from Africa. So he steps into the middle of uh, New Orleans, downtown, in the middle of Mardi Gras, and just wide-eyed looking at everything. And of course, the Americans are like, this rite of passage, this is going to be so much fun, we're going to have a good time. They go, they kind of make their way through all the, 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 uh, the partying, go to a bar. They're sitting at the bar. They all order drinks that they think look, you know, kind of what they want. And this African student is looking at them, and he has no idea about American culture, rites of passages, or anything like that. And he says, uh, are we Christians or not? Is this what Christians would do? And they looked at him, and they looked around the room. They paid for their drinks and just left them on the counter and just left. They, they realized this is probably not something we should uh, idolize and pursue. Now, if you've ever been to Mardi Gras, this is not about you going to Mardi Gras, okay? It's just about there's some things in your life where you recognize, I need to back away from this. This might not be something that I should engage in because it's not what God is calling me to. And what he's calling me to do is to love the Lord my God with all my heart, with all my soul, with all my mind, and with all of my strength, no matter where it takes me. 
God made us in his image so that we could dwell with him. And when we sinned against him, God took on our image to die in our place so that we could live with him forever. God made us to dwell eternally with him, but when we sinned, the eternal son died in our place so that we, would, so that we who should die would live eternally before him. And God made us to enter into a loving relationship with him. And when we sinned, God didn't stop loving us. But he has pursued us. Come across a story this week by, uh, we'll close with this. A guy named David. And David grew up in a, a, didn't grow up a Christian. He didn't grow up, he grew up in a different religion altogether. And uh, he would say growing up, his family participated in their religion just half-heartedly. And growing up, it was really more about schoolwork and being successful. And he was very successful with his schoolwork. And when he went off to college, all of a sudden, he started not doing so well. He said, my self-esteem suffered. I couldn't look to myself and say, hey, I'm, I'm, I'm doing as well as I used to. He started feeling really horrible about himself. He had no peace. He had a lot of emotional pain. And this stayed with him for years. It started in college, but it stayed with him. He, he moved to various cities, got different jobs wasn't able to, to shake that. And so one time, in the middle of his emotional pain and his sense of self-loathing, he cried out to God. And he said he was surprised to find out that when he cried out to God, he actually cried out to Jesus because he didn't have a lot of knowledge. Of, but Jesus was the, the name that came onto his lips, so he found himself crying out to Jesus. And when he did this, he said, all of a sudden he felt this sense of peace about it. But once the peace came... He kind of forgot about Jesus. Okay, good. I feel better now. I don't need Jesus or anything like that. Well, a couple of uh, months later, he was at his grandmother's house, and his grandmother was not a, a Christian, but she had a housekeeper who had been, who left a bunch of books laying around and uh, had gone on to other things, but the books were at the house. And so he found among, David found among her books, a New Testament. So he said, I'm, you know, I, I believe in the scientific method. You know, scientific method says you explore things, so I'm going to explore this. So he started reading the Bible and was amazed with the things that he began to find out about Jesus. But he still wasn't on board with everything. It's like, okay, I, I'm just on a spiritual journey. I'm trying to figure these things out. Well, one Sunday he woke up. He's sitting in a worship. Uh, actually, he was sitting at home, and the, he woke up, and he heard this voice, this pull in him saying, go to Go to a church this morning. Go to a church. So he went to a church. And he said when he walked in, he was absolutely terrified. So he just sat in the very back. He didn't want to interact with anybody. But as he sat and listened as they talked about Jesus and what Jesus had done on the cross, he started crying for two reasons. One, his old religion had said, you shouldn't have anything to do with Christians. You shouldn't have anything to do with this. And so he felt a little bit guilty for that. But then at the same time, he had this feeling that God was pulling him and tugging him to come to faith in Jesus. So he's in the back just kind of weeping about this. And a woman came up to him and began to talk with him. And he said, I think I believe that Jesus is the Christ and that he died for my sins. And I'm going to trust him. And so she began to get him uh, connected with the church. And uh, he said, I couldn't believe that God could love me so much as to bring me to this place this morning so that I might find Jesus, and Jesus might find me. You understand, as we're going through this, he's saying, Jesus is saying, this is what it is. You were made in God's image for a relationship with Jesus, for a relationship with God. And 
That has been broken by sin. And God knows that you're an eternal being and what awaits. And so God had sent his son, who's the eternal son, to become a human being, to bear your sins and to die on a cross. And then Jesus was resurrected, showing that we're going to be resurrected someday, one day. And what he's saying is for you as a human being, as a Christian, the thing that is to drive and motivate the whole of your life is this love for God, this returning love for him. He has loved me enough to send his son to die for me. And he's called me to come alive and to pursue that and to uh, love Jesus in return. Uh, So let me pray for us. Thank you for joining us on this podcast, a production of Seven Rivers Villages Church in Wildwood, Florida. Learn more at sevenriversvillages.org.